Hello and welcome, heroes, to the Crit Academy. I am your host, Justin. I'm your co-host, Brandon. And I'm your co-host, Ian. This podcast was created to provide you, our heroes, with new and reusable material for both players and DMs. We hope to inspire you with creative content that uh, you can bring with you on your next adventure. Hurrah! Our show may not be suitable for young children, but neither is our D&D games. Thanks for joining us here today at Crit Academy Studios, where everything's made up and your roles don't matter. That's right, your roles like a D&D game without any scale challenges. That's one of the things I miss about 4E. Well, then you're really going to like this episode. That's cool. Mm-hmm. It is cool. We got a really great show for you today, but we'd like to start off every show off on a high note. Um, every week we give away fat loots, uh, free adventures for people who sign up at our or subscribe to our website at CritAcademy.com. Our first giveaway comes from our sponsor, Goblin Stone. Each episode, we will draw one lucky subscriber's name, and they will win the five-star rated adventure, Banquet of the Damned, compliments of Goblin Stone. Goblin Stone is a community project for D&D fans based out of the UK. They aim to be a place where you can team up with professionals to turn your ideas into high-quality products and give every fan a chance to get published. Be sure to head over to www.goblinstone.com or you can check out our fellowship link on our website, www.critacademy.com. And today, our winner is Chris Brown 04. Congratulations, Chris Brown 04. If you enjoy the adventure, please leave Goblin Stone a review. We got a really great show for you guys today. Um, we have a question submitted to us by Michael R. in regards to game roleplay immersion. Our main topic today is skill challenges in 5e. And of course, we'll close the, close the show out with our unearthed tips and tricks where we bring you new and reusable material for you to bring with you on your next adventure. But before all that, we spend a few minutes talking about what's going on in our realm. Brandon, what's going on in your realm? Uh, I got days off. I'm enjoying work. And my mother-in-law got me a 9x9 Rubik's Cube. You should see this monstrosity. Oh my god. This thing is freaking huge. I mean, it, he's like, it's like it's a budget one, so don't move it because I was twisting it. He's like, it'll pop apart. <laughs> pretty, pretty dope. <laughs> I'm actually really happy because the average 9x9 is like two inches bigger than that. And every inch matters. Yeah, you can't get your hands around it if it's too big. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Ian. How about you? What's in your realm? Well, I'm actually be headed into Ohio this week. Like, every two years or so, and this is one of those years, obviously, my uh, extended family actually uh, rents out a uh, Salvation Army summer camp and just basically crash there for a week. Oh, that sounds cool. So I actually know my second and third cousins <laughs> as a result of stuff like this every year. And it's, I, I have to be honest, it's important to know your second or third cousin, because when you don't, you end up in really weird situations that actually happen to my aunt. So just... Yeah, it's um, and you should take time to appreciate that. For I moment. I saw like a fill in the blank, and I also won two keyboard shirts this week. So yeah, you won them. Yeah, that's amazing. Was there only other one com- one other competitor? Eight. Oh, that's not bad. <laughs> in both cases. Yeah, uh, you're actually gonna teach me how to play after this. I don't know if Brandon's gonna stay <laughs> around. There's one other competitor, and he can't read. <laughs> <laughs> that's not what that does. <laughs> so I'm excited to try that. And Justin, what's going in your realm? I've been playing uh, the shit out of the the Spellbreak uh, pre-alpha. I am loving it. I have put way too much time in that, and I got authorization from my wife to drum, drop $80 on it, even though it's not out yet. Uh. Um, and then uh, I've been playing a lot of Final Fantasy XIV. 
If you like Final Fantasy XIV or you play it, you can find me on the Marlboro server. My name is Galleon Wingrace. So, do, 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 do. Um, getting a lot of amazing ideas uh, from streaming. I've been streaming on twitch.tv slash Criticademy um, video games and taking some of those ideas and writing notes. I know Brandon was over Saturday and we were mm-hmm. taking some notes for uh, ways to, you know, D&D ideas, right, from the games that we're playing. And I've come up with some pretty gold, golden shit, man, so I'm super excited. I think that'll do it for <laughs> In the Realm. I want to thank everyone who has purchased our Unearth Tips and Tricks book. If you have purchased it, please take a few minutes out of your day and go leave a review on DMs Guild. That helps push it up to a more viewable audience in addition to the sales. So please do that. Um, Even if you don't write a review, at least leave a rating. I think that'll do it for In the Realm. If they'd like to visit other realms, how can they do that, Brandon? They can visit our website at CritAcademy.com and we have a link to Audible that you can click where you can get a 30-day free trial and a free book with that trial. Yes. Yay. I love my Audible. This is this is great. I'm looking at our book on DMs Guild. We got four five-star ratings and three five-star reviews so far. Yeah. That's, that's a start. So moving on to our next topic, we have our Let's Talk About Blink segment where we answer Crit Nation feedback. This week's question comes from Michael R. Guys, I got a question on roleplay immersion. A fighter likely wouldn't refer to himself as a fighter, but instead maybe a warrior or a mercenary. Or a soldier. Or a soldier. What would a sorcerer or wizard go by if not their class name? So I have my own thoughts on this. What do you guys think about this? Well, a sorcerer can pretty much see themselves just calling themselves as a sorcerer. Because, well, they're a freaking sorcerer. Right. <laughs> Chris Angel? That's a mind freak. I love that show. I thought you were about to read my, my notes for myself in there. What oh, you, is that what those are? Yeah. They're my I always think mages in general. <laughs> <laughs> Fucker. <laughs> <laughs> But enough you wrote down, though, I actually had some more thoughts, too. So. Yeah. As a, uh, a user of the craft or maybe uh, someone who can tap into the ethereal. I, I don't know. Those are more descriptions than phrases. Actually, with a source in particular, I can see themselves calling them, themselves a blood magic user since that's where their magic comes from, their ancestries. Ooh, I like that. Blood magic. Blood magic user. I like that. Um, personally, um... Well, I, I agree with Ian that sorcerers probably just call themselves sorcerers, though the blood magic thing's pretty cool. When it comes to a wizard, um, we kind of already do something. We we call we don't call wizards that dabble into necromancy wizards. We call them necromancers. necromancers. <laughs> so I can see wizards at, at this point calling themselves based on whatever their school of study is. You know, a conjurer, an, uh, an illusionist, a transmuter, or a blade singer. I mean, to me, that's what I feel like they would refer to themselves as, not as a wizard, personally. Um, and I, I think that that uh, extends beyond just like wizards. Same thing with like ro- rogues. I don't think they consider themselves rogues. You can also kind of go with the archetypes at this point, you know, yep. uh, a thief or a um, assassin, but also a cut purse or a burglar, you know, burglar. So, so um, and and that could that could be something that should be an ongoing trend throughout your campaign, because um, we refer to classes as the mechanic. That's a game mechanic for us. But in a world, commoners specifically are going to not know the difference between a warlock and a sorcerer and a wizard. They're just going to be <laughs> witches and in, 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 uh, mages and, you know, using, you know, wizard and sorcerer interchangeably. They're not going to really be able to tell the difference. Magic is magic, and that's about it. You know, that actually makes me think of a uh, scene from the first book in the Sword of Truth series. Where, like, some, some villagers do show up to a old hermit's house who, the guy is a wizard... Where are the bond you? Because you're a witch! Okay, first off, I'm insulted by that comment, because first off, a witch is a woman. I'm clearly a man. And second of all, if you want 
the male version of which they're called the warlock. Fine, you're one of those. Okay, I'm a wizard. And that still insults me because I am not a warlock. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Oh, God. <laughs> I can go on, but yeah. you get the idea. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. So, munching into one of these cookies here that your wife made. Oh, my God. Isn't it fucking it's, an orgasm it, in your mouth? It's like the delicious fairy just came in my mouth. So Yeah, it's, it's fucking phenomenal. It's peanut butter cookie with Reese's pieces and actual Reese's chunks, like the mini Reese's. Did you hear that? He likes your wife's cookies. Oh yeah, well she is fucking amazing. <laughs> if uh, if you're a wizard and you only use fire magic, calling yourself a pyromancer would be pretty fun too. Or someone who uses ice being a cryomancer. Yeah, I, I that'd be great. I agree 100. percent So, um, to any DM or any player, think about that stuff when you're playing your character. And somebody says, "What are you playing today?" I am playing a pyromancer. That's far more specific than I'm a wizard or I'm a sorcerer. They know instantly that you love fire, you know. Um, and once again, that can also rub off to nicknames and stuff that the NPCs you interact with uh, call you as well. So, um, this is a great question. I really like it. It's something that I didn't really ever hadn't never really occurred to me, you know. So, um, thank you, Michael R, for your submission. We hope we answered your question today. Ooh, or if you're like a monk who's unfortunately playing the elemental monk archetype, so are you. I'm a practitioner of the flame of the fire fist. <laughs> Ooh, I like that. I am a fire dancer. Oh, wait, a... no. I'm a practitioner of the fist of the phoenix. That is really dope. But phoenixes don't have fists. Shut up. Um, so that'll do it for our Let's Talk About Blank segment. Uh, Michael R., thank you very much for your submission. We hope we answered your question. If we didn't, please send a letter to the complaint department with some cash attached. We take money orders and checks as well. But checks bounce. So, so yeah. So, uh, Fire, what are you? I am an English Connecticut. Oh, that was almost too close to yeah. a very, uh... <laughs> that's what I was hearing. Did he just drop the N-word? <laughs> what the hell even is that? Oh, there goes our two listeners. If you saw the money from the Holy Grail, the French taunters. Oh. Oh, okay, that's where you got Yo, that. English Connecticut. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Hey, French, you silly king. That's really good. I fought in your general direction. I do remember what that. What are you line. doing in England? Mind your own business. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? I am your king. What? I did not vote for you. <laughs> I pulled a sword from a, from the Lady of the Lake. Strange women shifting swords is no business for our government. <laughs> there we go. All right. So moving on to our main topic today, we have skill challenges in Five E. This is an amazing product written by R. P. Davis. If you've listened to the show, you've heard heard me touch on before skill challenges. While D&D 5e or D&D 4e usually gets a bad rap unfortunately for no for no other reason than it was different than its predecessors it was very different from its predecessors um it followed more of a tactical format more than role play <laughs> and and a lot of the abilities clearly focused on that aspect which i loved and and a lot of people did that the people that played it and played it for what it was a tactical board game was pretty much what it was and i think honestly a lot of people who hated 4e get, just kind of got on the bandwagon Without actually looking at 4E first. <laughs> right. And arguably, one of the best things to come out of it wasn't undoubtedly skill challenges. Um, and I do have to, on a side note, though, the biggest complaints I heard, I've heard people make about 4E was the fact that, like, you can't roleplay in there or some equivalent to that. It's like, you don't need a game system to roleplay in the first place. The yes. game mechanics has nothing to do with it. Stop making up excuses. Yeah, but I think their, their point to their point was is that it doesn't actually give a lot of information on what to do. But you don't need a lot of information for what to do for roleplaying. If you've played roleplays before, you don't. But for people that are just beginning, um, it was definitely less roleplay because there wasn't rules really established very well for that. But I think the, the rest of it was that you don't really need rules for roleplaying. Yes. Okay. 
Uh, so yeah, let's stay on topic here. <laughs> what is a skill challenge? Yes. Simply put, a skill challenge is a series of skill checks by multiple characters where a certain amount of successes spread across multiple skills and characters and must achieve before a number set number of failures, right? Yep. Um, and so this gentleman, uh, R.P. Davis, actually went through and created a document on DMs Guild, and we have a link to it in our show notes, that actually kind of gives you guidelines for using those skill challenges in 5e and kind of how to build them so we're going to kind of work our way through these and kind of discuss them a little bit and kind of talk about what some of the things he did uh, or how he's got this set up so i guess the the first question is ian why why even bother with a skill challenge well skill challenges are great when you want to just have a multi-step process or deal with a problem that requires just more than one person to contribute to the situation right i like one example we use later I, it, like let's say like you were in court. Yes, that's a good that's a that's a good example. I've For, used it before. Like uh, like one person's a lawyer, one person is a witness, another person is another their individual presenting evidence, and so on and so forth. Yep, and then each set of roles determines whether you you win a condition. Like if the person is the prosecutor and is arguing, it's a contested check, right? And okay, I won, so we get a success. While they're objection, overruled, bitch. <laughs> Sit down. Who wants to be his lawyer? Shoot, I'll be his lawyer, Honor. <laughs> Where's that from? Cars. Oh. Another example would be uh, tasks like talking around um, a skeptical noble, shoring up the roof of a mine, sneaking across a city, uh, winning a court case in the example you just described. Trying to skip a, and, a, a death trap. <laughs> or tracking down a criminal, uh, among ma- many other things, especially when it comes to things like gathering information, right? Ooh. Skill challenges are a good way to uh, do that quickly. Ooh, brewing potions. Oh, I hadn't considered that. I usually dangerous the... potions. <laughs> Kaboom potions. Yes. <laughs> um, are there any other uh, reasons why you would use a skill challenge uh, aside from what we just touched on, Brandon? Five E has group checks. Yes, but it often can't uh, always ac- uh, accommodate a complicated complicated activity. Yeah, that's another one. Yeah. Uh, um, um, <laughs> and another point we're going to touch on too, though, is the fact that like uh, most XP that is by default award in game is awarded for combat and nothing else. They don't really t- tell you anything for anything that's non-combat, such as like uh, for role playing opportunities or skill challenges. In this case, right. And and using skill challenges, you uh, this book actually gives you templates for how much uh, experience could be passed out and assigned to skill challenges, so that you can reward players for complex. Um, solutions without combat Ooh. in a in a in a good balanced way instead of just giving them not enough or too much skill a skill challenge for trying to forge a magical sword yeah <laughs> that's nice dude that's dope write that down somewhere we, we we can do something with that oh dude we could write us i could write like a couple page book on crafting a magic item with something like that. oh Derailing. Um, Not so, hard to do. <laughs> so there's a lot of good reasons of why you would want to use a skill challenge. Because yes, for instance, if you're trying to sneak in somewhere, you can just consecutively ask for, give me a sneak check. Give me a stealth 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 check. Okay. I've given them all these stealth checks. What are the failures for those? Instead of trying to figure out what the failure is for every single one of those, you could create... Uh, a skill challenge that then says, okay, I'm going to him to give me, you know, five skill checks. Um, he has to succeed five. The team has to succeed five times before 
failing three times. And then you as the DM can set those conditions um, for each of those levels of potential failure. And I believe what's coming too is when you use the same skill multiple times, the difficulty rating for it goes up. That is something. I don't actually think that's something that uh, he specifically covers. But that's totally how it worked in 4E. Oh, yeah. Least. But you also have a bigger range of skill sets in, uh, or like stats. Uh, Theoretically. And here, this one, you have the bounded accuracy system. So so what goes into to running a skill challenge? Well, similar to normal checks, um, but you're allowed multiple skills to help determine success. Now, as we go through this, we actually, our encounter today actually is a skill challenge from one of the, the four ebooks that we're going to actually role play through. We got, we'll discuss the mechanics and then we'll actually role play out a, a segment I'll post and we can read through it. It's pretty dope. Um, but, uh, when running the scale challenge, you allow the PCs to leverage other skills that can affect the game in a way that wouldn't normally be applied. Like we were talking about sneaking in, in into a facility a, a few moments ago. Um, what do, other do, skill sets do, could you do, use do. besides just stealth? Because traditionally, somebody would just say stealth. Deception. Deception's a good one. So I'm going to distract this one. So I'm going to uh, I'm going to go over here and uh, distract this guy over here, and that'll grant. Uh, that might grant us success on our stealth. So if somebody else running across the field fails their checks, it kind of offsets that sort of thing. Or whatever equivalent you can have to engineering or arcana or <laughs> I can yeah. go on. Um, and basically, as the DM, you're keeping score and tallying successes and failures, right? As the, the game progresses, right? What do you mean? Do I have an invitation? What do you mean? I'm not on the invite list. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot my invitation and I'm late. <laughs> when running the the skill challenge the goal is to uh allow uh checks to resolve scenes as they happen and each resolution builds towards a a, a larger goal in in some way or some shape skill challenges are are useful in the and i think at in their core when you don't know that you've triggered one mm-hmm. we always call for a check and the player knows they're checking for something um, if they know that they are in a skill challenge, and this is experience from 4E, um, as well as Davis actually touches on this, if they are aware they're in a skill challenge, they're going to try to focus on only using skills they think that will help them instead of actually getting creative. So if you can, try to keep the fact that you, they've rolled into a skill challenge kind of under wraps in a way. That, <laughs> yeah, that's that's going to be hard. <laughs> it is, without telling them. So I remember we were playing for you and you'd have us roll three checks and I'm like, hmm, this is, this sounds like a skill challenge. Right. And that was more of a failure on my part. I wasn't as good. I wasn't uh, as well planned as I am now. But how do you hide it? Well, it doesn't, it just depends on the scene. You describe, as you roll through the screen, a scene and describe that's, let, let's, let's go through an example here. So your goal oh is to get into this noble's house and swap out some paperwork, right? falsify evidence mm-hmm. you're not to kill anybody you're not your your goal isn't that so it becomes a different kind of game right your goal isn't to, to just okay so i could say well i give you give me a stealth check oh you got a 20 oh you just fucking lollygag and, st- and stroll right in you swap out the paperwork and you leave that's not really all that interesting but if you say okay you guys get to the the walls of the 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 nobleman's house you can see lanterns running across the tops of the walls and you see guards patrolling give me a perception check uh ian okay roll 18 uh, as you're <laughs> i like what you did there <laughs> as you're observing you actually start to see a pattern and you notice that there's a a, a potential opportunity for you guys to sco- scoot across um towards one of the lower parts of the um the wall um and you actually notice that there's a pattern to the the patrols so if you can get there in time you can manage to uh 
Ooh. climb over without being undisturbed. And do we are the documents already forged, or, or do we have to forge ourselves? Ooh, see, that would be so. That could be another part of the skill challenge. Maybe that's the start of it. Is you're forging the documents, and maybe instead of rolling, you roll a of all things a deception dexterity check. Ooh, uh, is that where you try to? You no, no, you can make the jump, but you purposely fail. <laughs> No, you try to copy the uh, document and falsify it, but you use your dexterity so you can match the handwriting. Ooh, oh. I like that. See, I didn't, I didn't think about that. I would have used the sleight of hand, which I guess is still, which is still, still uh, dexterity. Sleight of hand would work too, yeah. but yeah. But um, so yeah, so you actually started a little earlier than me. You you went through this process, and so now you've got several layers. You've um, you've rolled to get this document written. You've rolled to find a weakness in the defenses you've rolled to an athletics check to get over and then you maybe another sneak to sneak in so now let's say you manage to fail the athletics and you try to climb up the wall and you fail and now you create noise you've just created a new layer of difficulty so that's a failure that's considered a failure now because it's too because because it's a skill challenge let's say we've decided it needed six successes before three failures that first failure on the athletics track is drawing attention to the guards but doesn't mean you failed your job yet in some cases the 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 dm might say oh you've attracted the guards you're now fighting the guards what was that noise um instead you get something like that and they have to overcome that either they engage in combat which might draw more causing them to fail or they have to create another distraction you know starting a fire on the other side of the uh the uh, area, maybe a, a sorcerer points his finger and loosens a firebolt and lights a tree on fire, you know, creating a distraction so they can escape. And so as you're w- working your way towards, so now they've got a couple successes and a single failure. So now you have to set up as the DM the next challenge. What is the next thing they have to do? Well, the one opportunity that they had is gone. Security is a little tighter. Now how are they going to get into it? Uh, well, we can't just climb in before without hurting somebody, and our contract says we can't. So now maybe we have to do something more along the lines of bribing one of the guards. So yeah, there's bribing guards, uh, lock picking, lock picking. That that would suck as a failure. Ooh, maybe <coughs> maybe the uh, fortress you're trying to penetrate has like a magical defense of some t- kind, so you have to use Arcana to bypass it. Ooh, nice one. Or maybe if it's like an old fortress or a castle or something, throwing history. <laughs> See if there's an alternative entrance or an escape tunnel. Right. You can get it to. As the um, skill challenge advances, because we're not just doing a pass-fail condition, there's different le- different levels of failure. Um, mm-hmm. And you kind of we'll, we'll get more into that. So, um, so the other thing to keep when running one of these skill challenges, the other thing that uh, D- uh, RP Davis talks about is he c- not just skills. Right. We've spoken on. <laughs> We've spoken on the show about draining player resources. Skill challenges are a great way to do it. Do this. Encouraging the use of spells from casters mm-hmm. is a good way to do that. If you can find a way to convince a wizard that it's better for him to use a spell slot on Knock. Is that a first level spell? It's not a cantrip. I don't know. Just use Mage Hand. Uh, that work too? Well, it depends on what you're trying to do. Or precipitation. Right. You can. That's it, it doesn't better. The point. The point is like uh, setting alarms. Right. Yep. Alarm is a spell. Right. It can consume a spell slot. So making challenges that you know, uh, while they can get them by with more mundane ways, encouraging players to consume their spell slots and resources, trying to overcome these challenges, also is a powerful tool for weakening them without actually entering combat. You know, that made me think of uh, one, I know you used as an example a while back, but in the webcomic or- Order of the Stick, mm-hmm. when they came to a bridge that's being guarded by, by two trolls, halt, in order to use a bridge, you must pay the toll. The fighter rolls a bluff check, but we paid the toll yesterday. 
oh, uh, I guess it's okay then. You may pass. But then what ruins it though was the bard in the back decides to use bark inspiration and then the loot was shrimming, bluff, bluff, bluff a stupid ogre. <laughs> and the trolls heard that. That's funny. <laughs> of course, they were parodying game mechanics at that point in, in the webcomics, so... Allowing your players to consume their resources can lead to other uh, effects, like whether it's an auto-success, right? The bigger the resource they consume and the more sense it makes narratively, you might just grant a player an auto-success. For in this case, let's say you you fail to get into the wall, so the wizard decides to cast Alter Self or Disguise Self or, or some sort of spell that allows somebody to just walk right in, right? Dimension Door. Dimension Door. Um, so that's going to drain their, their combat capabilities, but auto- might automatically grant them a success. Now, as a DM, you can also say, okay, instead of it granting an auto success, maybe it grants advantage on a check of sorts. You know, like uh, on disguise self, maybe when the wizard, when the character that's got disguise self is walks up, maybe you grant advantage on their deception check when they're trying to get in. If you decide you don't want to just go with an auto success, because that might be a little too much depending on what kind of difficulty you're going for. Another thing is. If, you, if you're doing skill challenges over a long period of time uh, where the player can recover slots, like long travel, this should only ever grant, like, advantage because you don't want to grant them auto-success if they can just keep guaranteeing them a success. When you're working your way through a skill challenge, Brandon, is there a specific order that should be followed? Do you think that that matters? Well, while there isn't really any order needed, it's advised in, uh, to try and keep some sort of organization when doing skill checks. Uh, that's going to ensure that everyone gets to be included when possible. Um, yeah, a good way to do this is just following initiative. Mm-hmm. If you've got initiative roles, you can just have them follow initiative. Initiative. Now, don't ma- don't be locked into that. Just be if if one person has a good idea and nobody in your offering turns to other people out, but nobody else has any uh, goals or ideas, you can allow other people just to go uh, multiple times. But um, you want to find a way to encourage uh, the use of every single person's skills. Uh, in the examples we've talked, uh, just talked about, we focused on pretty much three, right? Deception, mm-hmm. stealth, and um, athletics in the sample. But that's not the only thing. There could be investigation to find secret passages, right? Yeah, we're, we're testing, talking about earlier when you're walking around, like history could be an example of that. Oh, yeah, that would be a great one because maybe somebody has learned certain lore of the area that there used to be a, you know, a, a, an underground, you know, uh, porticalist with a sally gate and shit that went out and and was runoff for um yep for like the the plumbing or or, or the well or, or some shit and your player can say oh i'd like to i lived in this area give me can i can i know anything about this castle it's pretty old what, what do you say we don't say crap we're in the sewer all we say is crap <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um what really sets a, a a skill challenge apart from just continuous skill checks is um the way you narrate the 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 completion right um when you set up a, a, a when you just decide on the fly to do a skill challenge because usually those are pretty much on the fly right they can be for most of the part you just kind of oh the player wants to do this this is a skill check skill challenges are usually thought out in advance in most cases um and because of that you want to regardless of the significance of the pass or fail condition there's always something pushing the story forward with skill checks you usually say okay um, you're going to try to jump across this pit. You're either going to make it or you're not. 
And some DMs might say, well, you, I'll give you a save, too, if you do fall, you know? <laughs> but for the most part, uh, what in a skill challenge, you've decided, okay, if they pass... And actually, we'll get into this with the talking about planning the challenges, but you get to decide what the success, failure, and the tie is, you know, if they get somewhere in between. And that's that really is what separates it apart, and it helps you drive the story forward, which is important. And it's a good alternative to combat, right? Mm-hmm. You can have an entire night of just skill challenges, um, and how they play out is entirely up to the, the players, though. I have been in skill challenges where the players just came up with a creative ass so a creative ass solution i'm like fuck that works <laughs> and just move on you know uh, and actually i just kind of talked about the narration should take into consideration the level of success um did the pcs blow by the challenge yeah i already kind of talked about that or you know did they just narrowly pass ensure that whatever you narrate as the dm reflects that and the raising stakes and shoot you never quite know what solutions will people will come up with to use your skills for like let's say you're stuck in like an indiana jones style like uh rolling boulder situation like i don't want to ask okay you try to, to roll roll to right screw that i'm a barbarian i'm gonna still check the boulder <laughs> <laughs> let's see who's struck harder <laughs> um i'm gonna block it with my face <laughs> <laughs> so this is very narrative driven so i think we should uh talk about you know raising the stakes uh of the uh, of the um the skill challenges. So we're we're doing here sirloin, T-bone, steaks. <sighs> Dude, I just I just had an amazing, amazing flaming yawn, and it was awesome. We know every dramatic thing that happens in the game should have some kind of stakes, whether it's positive or negative. Uh, skill challenges formalize those stakes while giving you a vehicle to resolving uncertainty uh, surrounding them. A success should have a positive impact on those stakes. A failure. Whether a particular scene in the challenge or the entire challenge itself should impose a hazard. That's important. Do, um, you feel the, the the skill check affects the, the stakes of the situation? Then how well done instead of medium well. <laughs> <laughs> a, a good example. If you've listened to the episode of our that I ran with um, some friends a while back, call I think we called it uh, the Crit Academy trial. I think. Uh, and what it was is one of the parts of the dun- the, r- the run where they were in this room full of lava and there was acid, there was like stalactites that fell from and created these kind of platforms. And it was entirely a skill challenge. That's all it was. And as they failed or succeeded their challenges, something in the environment changed. Whether, oh, the platform you are jumping to has broken and is, is toppled over yet one less platform. Is that the game where Marie jacked up her teammate? Yes. <laughs> you must escape through the area that full of liquid hot magma. <laughs> oh, which, what she did. Then she like to use some sort of gust of wind to help someone cross uh, two pillars and fucked it up by doing it yeah, too much. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Ryan, uh, <laughs> she, was, she was trying to give Ryan a boost. Um, and it didn't go well, and she gave him too much of boost, and he got pierced in one of the stalactites in the ceiling. <laughs> she, portal, she portal combat his ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty funny. <laughs> so, uh, when it comes to, to planning a skill challenge, it's pretty easy to roll up your own skill, skill challenges. Um, we mentioned earlier that the, one of the big difference uh, between 4E and 5E is they have the bounded accuracy system, which means you don't have to worry about scaling DCs very much. Right, you can yep. keep DCs relatively similar and not have to worry about whether it's going to be too hard or too easy of a challenge. 
um, when it comes to 5e. Um, you can do it without really a whole lot of difficulty. It is important to add as much variety as possible, though. Yep. Nobody wants to do the same damn challenge all the time. And it's as simple as just reflavoring the, the features and the abilities that can be used. As a DM, when you are planning out your skill challenges, you want to take into consider the obvious, what kind of skills you expect to be used. If it's in a, if you're in the middle of a diplomacy, uh, and a discussion or negotiations, there's a few things that you automatically are going to come into play. What's number one? Persuasion. That's one. Deception. Yep. And intimidation are probably the top three that I would expect in a discussion kind of format, right? Yeah. Um, that being said, as the DM, you can kind of plan that out and then say, okay, what are some other skills my players have and I can expect them to use and what kind of benefit would it grant? History, arcana. Right. We're going to get into that with our encounter today, which is Nature. really cool. You got those same three things because it revolves around flavor, influence, and, and um, you know, discussion. So those are the sorts of abilities you're going to use. Barbecue sauce. If you're, run- <laughs> if you're running uh, a, a skill challenge where you want hazards, like in the example I gave with the lava, everything the characters are trying to do is physical, so you can kind of assume, oh, if the wizard's got flight, he's probably going to use it. If the, the, the barbarian can rage and grant athletics, he's probably just going to jump across jump across the, the lava pits and the, the jumping from um, you, you jumping know- from platform to platform. You know what would be great is if the wizard used, uh, what was it, ten- Tenor's Floating Disc? Is that the name of it? <laughs> Tensor's yes. Floating Disc. Ten- ten- Tensor's Floating Disc? Yeah. And they're doing that, and they're hovering across a lava pool, and they come across a field that's dispel magic. <laughs> ah, I wish I would have thought of that. <laughs> just like, oh! oh. <laughs> um, that's actually a good example. They're running across the hot floor. Hot, 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 hot! But that might be something, as the DM, I might not have thought of. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I would be like, that's a creative-ass solution, you know, to the problem. And you have to react to that. I'm a, for something like that, I would give Grant like an auto success for one for one try. Fuck up my challenge with that shit, goddamn wizards. I'm gonna cast magic wall. Actually, make a ramp. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, when it comes to hazards, like for instance, uh, we mentioned the magma. But if you're in a in a mountainous area and they're climbing and they fail the check, well, they could fall or they could pull a boulder loose. And a goddamn boulder fall to the person below and knock them down. How bad is the player going to feel if they fail the check but somebody else gets punished? You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> That's a really dick thing to do, but that skill challenges allow, really uh, allow for st- stuff like that. I'm picturing Homer Simpson falling down that cliff. <laughs> <laughs> ow! Oh! 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 Ow! Um, the next thing DP uh, Davis gets into oh, is yeah. complexity. In 4th edition, complexity was really big. There was like 6 or 7 or 8, how many, I don't know how many, teams, I don't know how many tiers there were. There was a lot of them. Uh, actually, I think there was only 5. There was uh, like 5 different tiers, but in 4E, we already have a base system of difficulty of 3, don't we? We got easy, medium, and hard DCs. That is more than enough to drive and decide how you want to set up your challenge. If you want them to run an easy challenge, that is pretty much, they're going to succeed, but it's going to cost them something, right? So rare. <laughs> rare <laughs> followed by medium then well when you're when you're planning out your your skill challenge if it's easy you're basically planning on them succeeding with little or no cost um it's guaranteed pretty much success but you're going to drain a resource um medium the skill challenge uh are interesting stakes regardless of success or failure the outcome <laughs> is going to lead to a narrative direction that pushes the the story forward in a positive way now a hard skill challenge uh, make for great stakes on player agency, uh, according to DP uh, Davis. When the players try to avoid other challenges, like using skills to avoid combat encounters, a good hard skill challenge is a good reward for that. Right? Thorpe would love this conversation. Oh, oh yeah? Why is that? 
because he's Thorg and he likes steak. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great character you made, too. Yeah. My favorite aspect of him was how he does not understand Calvin. <laughs> right. And one of the final things that um, this supplement touches on is determining success. Now, I mentioned it earlier. When we use the example of six successes before three failures, you get kind of a range of potential successes, right? Mm-hmm. Let's say they don't get any failures. They get what DP calls a total victory. The party succeeds and gets the rewards of the challenge. That's it. They've done it. There's no penalty, whatever. And then let's say they manage to get one or two failure. Then you get something where it's a partial victory where the party succeeds, but there's a cost attached to that success. Like they managed to swap the documents, but one guy gets spotted and he's now wanted. Ooh, that's a really good one. I like that. So now that they're looking for that guy, wondering why he was in there at night. Yep. But the Porsche's badly drawn. So the hope will wear that him. <laughs> they always get my nose wrong. <laughs> Rider. Um, and then, of course, failure. The party doesn't get anything that they want, and the situation may probably become worse. And that's really... You're more often than not going to come across success and partial success than you are failure. But those are the things when you're planning out a skill challenge, you have to keep in consideration. And that was a really great example. Yep. In, in, the, in that one, a total success would – they snuck in, they got in, they swapped the document, no problem. Partial success is they swapped the document, it was written really poorly, and somebody was detected. So maybe there's a chance that – the document is recognized as a forgery, and that person is to, that was caught was to blame. This isn't the original treaty. How can you tell? Been written in crayon. <laughs> and there's barbecue sauce on the side. Barbecue sauce. <laughs> um, so this supplement by R.P. Davis really gives you a lot of um, guidance on building those skill challenges, which, in my opinion, are a great alternative to combat and a good way to deal with exploration <laughs> and more social-style encounters. And I recommend it a lot. I have used it in my game, my 5e games, but I don't let it be known mostly to my players at all. I don't even know if you've ever noticed you've been part of skill challenges. But Yeah. God damn it. But because I played 4e. Uh, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a very powerful tool. Um, Brandon, you are kind of excited about it. What is it you really love about skill challenges versus just skill checks? That it can completely split the story into two different paths. Maybe even multiple ones. And I like the fact that each uh, skill challenge, whether each success or a failure, builds off of each other. Yes. Right. I, I like a skill challenge that where the outcome could be um, you're finally going to catch up to this person to interrogate them, and you've been going through this entire mod all night, and the skill challenge is going to determine whether or not you're actually going to catch them. Right. And if you don't, you can be like, well, we're going to have to come back next week and try again. And yeah. Try and track them down, all that stuff. But I like the idea of... Not being completely railroaded. So that'll do it for our main topic today, uh, Skill Challenges for 5e by R.P. Davis. Um, This is an amazing supplement, and it's only 95 cents. Um, So check it out. It's worth every penny, Um, especially if you're looking for good alternative ways to run interesting encounters that aren't related to combat. So I buy that for a dollar. Before we move on to our... Unearth tips and trick. We have one more gift to give away. Compliments of Warsmith. Each episode, we will draw another lucky subscriber's name, and they will win the best-selling adventure, The Claws of Madness. Compliments of Lawsmith. Lawsmith is a small indie team of creative artists who remember exploring the realms together with friends, finding incredible places, and meeting colorful characters along the way. 
They set out to deliver an experience that sparks those lasting impressions that pushed them to create their first standalone adventure, The Claws of Madness. This best-selling adventure is one that you don't want to miss. <laughs> Brandon, who's our winner today? Our winner for the Lawsmith Prize is Elemental JJ. Congratulations, Elemental JJ. If you enjoyed the adventure, please head on over to loresmith.com and let them know what you like. And now, what you've all been waiting for. Our Unearthed Tips and Tricks segment, where we bring you new and reusable material for both players and DMs. Shit. Um, so in episode 74, we discussed the botanist as a potential character concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and this kind of jumps off of that a little farther. Um, in this build, you're reflavoring a lot of the wizard's necromancy spells um, in, a, in such a way that's related to, like, plants and flowers and trees and branches and and all things nature so this could be a really good spin on the wizard taking maybe would fit well with like the hermit background or the uh, outlander background um and gives your wizard something different than the traditional went to school and studied and and that's kind of his thing when the character summons minions like skeletons or zombies um through magic instead of as they rise, you kind of describe them as plant vines, twisting and forming and making muscles and ligaments inside of the creature, where they get little flowers that have like uh, that <laughs> kind of grow in the eye and glow, you know, like uh, something that like a firefly or something. And everything about the creature is basically just a set of bones that are being supported by a uh, like a uh, a plant creature. So it's more more of a plant creature than a traditional undead. Um, giving them a very monstrous look with like whipping, you know, whipping uh, tentacles and 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 stuff like that. Oh, Orms. great! Now I'm thinking about that one dude from the Black Company. <laughs> Who's that? Um, in the Black Company book series, there was like a one wizard in particular, the Limper, who they killed multiple times, but he always kept on coming back. Mm-hmm. And one of the times he came back, they thought they killed him once and for all because they they decapitated him and burned his body. Wow. But but then the uh, his head was then found by some cultists who basically created like a a wicker man like body and put his head on top of it. <laughs> oh, that's dope! And like, oh crap, he's back! <laughs> what does it take to kill this guy? What's <laughs> <laughs> funny is a wick, wicker man body. It's just like they burned my body, and you reanimated me with a wooden body. <laughs> <laughs> so why it can burn easier? Why would you do that? <laughs> I have a fear of fire now. Um. This is really cool because something that gets overlooked with like skeletons and stuff and zombies is that everyone just automatically assumes that the weapons that they have are always the same. By using this kind of flavor, you can easily work with your DM and have the weapon that they wield be a piercing, da- their damage be piercing or slashing or bludgeoning, depending on what kind of monstrosity you create in this in this form. Um, what are some other uh, kind of necromancy or necromancy features that we could maybe reflavor to fit this kind of theme? Hmm. Grim Harvest would be a great one. Oh, man. Why don't you tell me about yeah, it? Yeah, your spells leave small black and purple flowers that absorb the life energy of your foes, feeding it to you through vines into your body. That's really cool. That's the one that lets you heal when you kill something, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. That's pretty dope. Uh, <laughs> what kind of other spells could we reflavor that might uh, fit this theme so you can keep this kind of 
Poison Ivy almost like build, right? That's yeah. kind of what I'm thinking of as Poison Ivy now, right? Oh yeah, from Batman. If you don't know who Poison Ivy is, Batman um, kiss to kill. Maybe like uh, Tasha's hideous laughter, right? but you triggered the spell by with like a spores. Ooh, that's a good one. I like that. So it quick. <laughs> So it kind of creates like a hallucinogenic effect. <laughs> yeah, like uh, like the Joker uses the little squirty flower, but instead <laughs> yep. of it being like a juice, it's like a pollen. Yep. That's cool. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Sniff my lapel. Squirt, squirt. <laughs> one that comes to mind to me and one of my personal favorites is Find Familiar. I can easily easily see reflavoring like uh, my favorite's Obama, right? So I use an owl. Um, reflavoring a skeletal owl to have like leaves as wings and and um, little like tendrils hanging from where its feet would be and like a, like a bird of paradise type feel. Mm-hmm. Obamacare is all natural now. <laughs> <laughs> That's oh my god! That's really good. I like that. <laughs> um, another good one that comes right to uh, uh, mind would uh, is is fog cloud. Instead of the area just being filled with a fog, maybe it's a, a uh, a really thick, dense pollen. Maybe it's a, your favorite smell. I love lavender. Like when I take a bath, I love lavender. It's just phenomenal. So, like you describe, you know, the explosion of pollen that creates a heavy, thick cloud and smells of lavender. <laughs> oh, it smells so good, but it hurts so much. Uh, do you guys got any others before we move on? There's cloud of daggers. Ooh, that's a good one. Uh, Bulbasaur could, could be a cloud of razor leaves. <laughs> Bulbasaur <laughs> use razor leaf. <laughs> <laughs> or ooh, or when you cast like various wall spells, so like a, a so like a let me hedge mate appears. Ooh, that could be cool. Yeah, like using shield and like hedges and bushes and shit up here <laughs> to absorb it. <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right, so I, I really like this. Um, I think this really is a cool build and kind of jumps off of that botanist idea. That made me think of one of a meme I saw online one time of uh, Idra panicked with some guards were showing up in his, in his middle of an open field and the. He basically polymorphed into a tree. <laughs> the, the girls came by. Was this tree always here? <laughs> um, Rules Bluff. I've always been here. Well, I guess a tree would know better than us. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so I think that'll do it for our character concept, the Necrobotanist. Ian, would you like to tell us about our monster variant? All right. The monster variant we have here is the Spore Zombie. And the origin for that is the Ogre Zombie. New feature. The uh, morning start that the monster normally wields is actually just a bramble of heavy vine branches. Add some thorns for extra flavor. Oh, nice. (laughs) And he also gained defensive spores. When a spore zombie is hit by an attack, it can use the reaction to launch toxic spores at a creature dealing three poison damage to one creature it can see within ten feet. Are you sure you have not played The Last of Us? (laughs) What? No, that's uh, that's the spore (laughs) druid effect. Because everything I've read so far reminds me of the boss monsters from The Last of Us. (laughs) Well, that just means what I thought of isn't very creative. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I hear. <laughs> thanks, so, thanks for like making me feel like shit, Ian. I appreciate. it. Well, you've done other concepts that made me go. This is like the clickers from The Last of Us. <laughs> Never. I don't need. Is that a book or a movie? Or game. A, it's, a, it's a game. Oh. They came out for the PS4, but they remade it. No, sounds like a horror flick. It is. I don't play games like that. Well, they came out for the PS3, but then scared. they remastered it for the PS4. It's, it's good. I only have like three games for my new PS4, so it's kind of like Resident Evil, but without as much pop out scares kind of thing. Yeah, no, yeah. I don't. And I don't do games like that. And it's got a jacked up ending, so it, it's not really scary though, as much as like a suspense. Yeah, I don't like that either. Another ability it gives is the Sleep Pollen Aura that I can use once per day, where it has a 15 foot radius of toxic pollen extend out from the spore zombie, which moves with it and spreads around corners. 
A creature that starts its turn in the pond must make a DC 12 con save. On a failed save, the creature suffers the effects of the sleep spell. If the creature's saving throw is successful, the creature is immune to the spore zombie's spore aura for the next 24 hours. I guess there sh- I probably should have put like a time on that. Maybe. Yeah, I would say that would probably last a minute, but I didn't put that on there, but that's okay. Um, Although you could just use the same duration for as a sleep spell, because it's affected by the sleep spell. Oh, there you go. Yeah. But it's, yeah, anyways, um, so, uh... Actually, the radius thing made me think of a brief debate I saw on one of the D&D pages on Facebook. Like, okay, you have a radius of 15 feet. How do we draw that out on a map? And people, of course, went back oh and forth. Oh, God. Y- y- oh, you saw that, too? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I had, too, like, a, the pals on the feet, people like, well, uh, we just use these, like, um, area things that we use in Pathfinder. I'm like, that doesn't work! Th- those are drawn for Pathfinder, where they double count every other diagonal. <laughs> yeah, no, um... It's funny watching people argue on stuff that JC has already given an answer onto and is in both the book and the um, Xanathar's Guide. <laughs> yeah, I've lost how many times where people argue with me. What? But that here should be in a circle. I'm drawing it as a square. Yeah. <laughs> but it should be a circle. It, it, it's a square grid, dude. And honestly, <laughs> you guys, it doesn't fucking matter. Whatever. Whatever. And, 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 as long as you're all on the same page. And am I wrong? <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't care. I'm like, we're not playing Warhammer. We're either ruler and draw a circle. <laughs> I did find out just recently that I've been doing Thunderwave wrong for like five years. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> you know it doesn't radi- out, radiate out from you in all directions? No. You didn't know that or you didn't know I that? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. I always just assume fucking Dragon Ball Z, send your hands out and everything out going all directions. But that's not how it works. Nope. It's more like you hold your hand out in front of you and fucking shit, fuck shit up in front of you. Um. Anyways. Um. So, what do you guys think about this? Uh. This monster. Sounds fun to me. Yeah. I like the idea that it uh, poses a threat even when you're attacking it. Yeah. You get punished for attacking it. Yeah. Up close. Is that what it says? Just says when it's attack. Uh, it says uh, if it sees a creature within ten feet, that gets attacked. Well, I guess that would so be most. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to attack the attacker. Right. But they could throw a spore at one of the uh, others. Right. Right. It's very cool. I really, I've been playing around with some stuff like this. Obviously, with the two monsters, I kind of went with the or the two concepts. I went with kind of a a botany feel, but I like this because I'm always looking for more monsters in swamps and in forest areas. <laughs> We're uh, professional phlebotomists. You want to see my stamp collection? <laughs> what? <laughs> Maybe if we were philatelist, smart guy, <laughs> philatelist. That'll do it for our monster variant, the Spore Zombie. So earlier in our main topic, we talked about running skill challenges. So for our encounter of the podcast, we have a skill challenge pulled right from the DM's Guide 4th Edition called The Negotiation. Now, the setup for this is the NPCs... uh, uh, the setup is for the NPCs to provide assistance. The PCs need to convince a noble of their trustworthiness and that they're they're there to basically help the NPC in any way possible. So the first thing you end up doing is you set the, the level of difficulty. In this case, it's medium, which means six successes before three failures. And then we kind of we set three primary skills, which would be deception, persuasion, and insight, right? Um, you could also argue intimidation, but actually for this particular... Um, Skill intimidation will not work because you are in the court of a noble's house surrounded by guards. So it's not something that's encouraged. And actually, you'll learn is punished it. So 
The some of the examples that are given are if somebody says they want to make a persuasion check, and I think this is good for another reason. Not every player likes to role play. Not nope. every character can't player can role play well. No, they can't just bust out a whole bunch of line of bullshit to fit the thing. So they can just say, "I make a persuasion check." So in this case, they say, "I make a persuasion check." The I roll to intimidate. Okay, but what will you say? What do you mean? What do I say? I roll to intimidate. Yeah, and and that that should be fine. So as a DM for the in this case, uh, for persuasion, you would say. You entreat the NPC for aid in your quest. First success with this skill opens up the use of the history skill. So in this one, if they succeed, we now allow them to utilize another feature um, to help grant them a success. And in this way, you could mention something in uh, some event in the NPC's past that has some significance for him. Um, another example would be uh, insight. You empathize with the NPC and use a knowledge to encourage assistance. Uh, so the first success on this reveals that any uses of intimidate will earn instant failures. So this is your players learning as they go without actually, without having to do all the role play involved. Now, don't let that stop you from allowing them to do that, but you can just feed them what happens. That's what you're supposed to do as the DM anyway. So we also have a quick description on what happens when they, they win and what happens when they fail. Uh, specifically for failure, the characters are forced to act without any assistance from the NPC. Uh, in this case, the, the Duke. Um, and they encounter more additional issues uh, on the way, especially if they anger or antagonize the NPC. So you've got some examples. So we're actually going to read an example and go through it how this should play out at the table. I call the Duke. He already did that a few minutes ago, so you're shit out of luck. But yeah, I was I was laughing when he said roll for intimidate because I imagine a a fighter's rolling on the ground. (laughs) So um, so we're gonna do an example of how a skill challenge typically plays out or should play out. Okay, I'm going to handle this with diplomacy, my good Duke. If you grant petition for our aid, it will not only help us complete our quest, but it will also secure your duchy from the ravages of the Gablin Horde for a season or more. Surely you can see the sense of that. So, and this is where the the DM would call for a, a diplomacy or persuasion check. And gets a success. And he gets a success. Hmm. Well said. I do remember the Battle of Cantle Hill. Nasty business. In this example, the DM informs the player that the history skill is now available because he just mentioned to you something, right? He said he gave you information of the Battle of Cantle Hill and that it was nasty business. So the players now understand a little something. I'm trained in history. I make a history check to see what I know about the battle. And I get a success. You know, the Duke uh, fought in the Battle of Cantle Hill before he rose to his current station. Uh, it was a terrible battle between the people of the duchy and a horde of goblins from the nearby mountains. The duchy barely won the day, thanks in large part to the actions of the duke. Does someone say goblins? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, then I tell the duke that I remember the tale of that battle well and how he bravely fought off the goblins and saved the duchy. Help us today and such a battle won't have to be repeated. I'm listening. Continue. Uh, the DM says uh, that Cathra's response is worth a plus two bonus to Elias's check. So this, and or in 5e, you could just do advantage, right? Who's Eliza? I forget they did the plus two, minus two, and you fourth. Mean, uh, oh, Elias? Yeah, why don't you take that? All right, I get a plus two bonus. Awesome. 
I'm going to use it to help our cause with a well-placed bluff. Duke, I know for a fact that the goblin leader is raising an army, even as we speak. If we don't enter the mountains and disrupt that army, the goblins will soon overrun the duchy before the next moon rises. <laughs> and this, you would then call for a, a, bluff check. a bluff check or a deception check with a bonus. With advantage. Um, and you got a success. An army. I won't sit by and let history repeat itself. Still, you are asking for a lot. Enough of this talking. It's time for action. I try and intimidate the Duke into helping us. Look, Duke, the goblins are the least of your worries. Agree to our demands, or we might have to take what we want. Now, uh, he makes an intimidation check, unaware that such an action is an automatic failure. And the Duke. How dare you! I will not be threatened by the likes of you. Uldar. Okay, calm down, everyone. We're all friends here. I emphasize with your desire to protect your people, Duke, and I assure you that we want to accomplish the same thing. But to do that, we really need your assistance. Makes an insight check, and gets a success. Yes. Well, I do not respond well to threats and intimidation. The DM explains, as an aside, that such attempts always gain a failure. Still, as long as we understand each other, let's continue. At the end of the round, the PCs have achieved four successes and one failure. The skill challenge continues. So that is a, a walkthrough of skill challenges and how they should work. And I'd also like to note, this gives a really good um, push to players out there uh, how it should be when you request a um, uh, when you request a, a skill check. If you're capable of, follow it up with rationale to what you're doing. Now, that's not required, but it certainly makes the game a little more interesting than just saying it helps. I intimidate. Now, once again, there's nothing against the rules or nothing against that sort of play, but it definitely certainly helps. And if that is the case where you are that person, don't be the person that gets stuck up with how the DM decides to handle it. You're just going to intimidate. All right, you raise your blade and attempt to swing. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Well, you just said you intimidated him. You didn't give me nothing to go on, so that's what you get. Roll on the floor. Yeah. Um. So that is. Uh, what did you guys think of this encounter? This this the skill challenge. I think it's a good example. Well, I hope so. It's literally the one out of the four ebook. <laughs> it almost sounds familiar. Probably because it's out of the four ebook, and I've run as, it before. As in, yeah, that's that's probably where it came from. <laughs> I read it before. So that'll do it for our encounter of the podcast. The negotiation. <laughs> this, the, this magic item is great because uh, I read this email uh, at lunch the other day, and it was all quiet, and I just went... <laughs> um, Brandon, <laughs> would you like to take our magic item? Uh, yes. Uh, this magic item is from PJ. Today's magic item is brought to you by PJ. It's an Irish kilt. I have a magic item suggestion. It's called the Irish kilt. Hmm. It appears to... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it appears to be a plaid green kilt with a red crisscross pattern. It radiates enchantment magic, and when you attune to it, you are forced to wear it until unattuned. It has three charges. While wearing it, you can use one of the charges and an action to do an Irish jig and give up to five creatures within 15 feet inspiration, or ten temporary hit points. There is a curse to this item, however. If a creature rolls a natural 20 on an attack against the wearer, or the wearer, wearer rolls a natural 1 on a save, 
the wearer must roll a, a D100. If the amount is lower than the wearer's HP maximum, after suffering from the effect that activated this trait, then the wearer must use their next move action and bonus action to do a non-magical jig in place. <laughs> <laughs> this kilt regains 1d3 charges at dawn, or one charge per bottle of beer drank. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't that be whiskey? Oh, uh, PJ, that's great. <laughs> If Irish, it's solid color. If plaid, then it's Scottish. Tomato, tomato. This guy says he's Irish, so that's not a racist magic item at all. That's what he said. <laughs> I didn't add it here, but... <laughs> he's like, trust me, this isn't a racist item. I'm Irish. I was like, I don't think it matters if you're... White. White or Irish. If you say something racist, it's still racist. The- I agree! <laughs> Kilts. It's a dress. I don't care what you say. Fuck you. <laughs> What do you guys think of this magic item? I love it. I'm not thinking about Groundskeeper Willie from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. While you wear this kilt and you rip off your shirt, you instantly have abs. <laughs> oh, you get to wear Wallace. That's awesome. Did you guys ever notice that? Like, yep. Groundskeeper Willie's got like a big belly until he rips off his shirt and then he's buff. <laughs> I assure yeah. you, when I rip off my shirt, it's still the same. Edwin Lass, brother of the sisters of natural enemies. Yeah, yes. Like Englishmen and Scots. <laughs> or Welshmen and Scots. A Japanese and Scots! Or Scots and other Scots! <laughs> what the hell? So Dang, Scots! They ruined Scotland! <laughs> uh, tell you, I, I, I know who William Wallace is. <laughs> because I, I, I'm Scott, too. I have my own tartan. You're like a, a penny's worth of Scott. I if. really want to take a... Does that even count? Yes. What, what's, what's that website? Ancestry.com's yeah. DNA test. My grandparents uh, got it for Christmas, so that's going to help a lot, too. Oh, nice. Got what? Scottish? No, they got the DNA test to find out where they came from. Because mm. my grandfather says, oh, I'm part Native American. Well, we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> but unfortunately, the people who had any ties to knowing my Scottish background are dead now, so. Mm. Ancestry.com. But I know that the last name Gray came from Scotland. Seems awfully plain. Was it just like, hey, look at the color of our kilt. Let's just go with that. Uh, <laughs> kind of. The, the, the actual gray tartan looks like ass. The hunting tartan for the gray clan, though, is green and magenta. Christmas colors? Magenta, not red. It looks awesome. And I it want it, but... Sounds like Christmas kilt. The name gray is under ancient and rare <laughs> Santa Claus in a kilt. You shove. <laughs> the name gray is under ancient and rare, so getting a tartan is very expensive. Well, that's exciting. Um, I, love, I love this magic item. I love the fact that you, you have a chance to waste your action just dancing. Because I feel like that would happen at like the most oppor- inopportune time. <laughs> like Half the players are down. You're the last one standing. And fucking the boss is bearing down on you. And you're like, it's time for a jig. <laughs> and the fact that you can recharge it by just downing booze is pretty fantastic. So this is a pretty cool item. Um, and... uh. Actually, that item also reminded me of uh, the web series The Awesomes, and they were a dysfunctional superhero team. But the villain from one episode was the, a villain whose name was Whiskey Dick. <laughs> <laughs> and his power was he was Irish. In the sense of he had so much, uh, he drank so much alcohol that people became drunk just being near him. <laughs> oh, oh, man. That sounds like an awesome character concept. <laughs> just belching, people get drunk. Yeah. All right. Pretty much. <laughs> That'll do it for our magic item, the Irish kilt. Thank you, PJ. 
Uh, yeah, I think it would make a great, great magic item. An alcoholic beverage that makes you so wasted, but whenever you talk to other people that are wasted, you understand exactly what they're saying. <laughs> it's like, it's like a universal language translator. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on to our Dungeon Master tip, because we've been talking for 15 fucking minutes on this stupid magic item subject. You get, you get shoved by that guy, he just rips you in half. <laughs> <laughs> Um, our Dungeon Master tip of the podcast is informing your players of skill challenges. Now, I know this kind of contradicts what I said before. In a combat encounter, the players already already know a great deal about how to overcome the challenge that you've set in front of them, right? They know that they got to kill the monster and the monster's got to die and they've got, you know, hit points and all that jazz and they have to overcome it uh, on their turn or whatever. That's, that's simple. Um, additionally, they know exactly what happens when they hit or they get hit or um, all, they know how combat works they know as soon as they're in combat this is what they got to do skill challenges are different and more difficult in some cases uh when the pcs are delving into uh the underdark for example this is actually an example right out of the 4e dmg um in search for a ruined dwarven fortress of gozar dune they don't necessarily know that the game is being abdicates uh that search so Unless you've informed them somehow. So they don't know what earns them a success and what causes them a failure in terms of the challenge you've just set in front of them. And this goes for any challenges you run as, are running. So you can't really start a challenge until the PCs understand that they are a part of one in some cases. This also means, uh, this means you basically have to give them the nudge to start it, right? For instance, as a DM, you might say, all right, you can use athletics check to scale the cliffs, but be aware on a failed check, you might dislodge some rocks and those, uh, on some of those, that must be where I got that idea. Yep. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I was quick on the line thinking of that, but I must, it's cause I put this together earlier. Um, it says you'll use an athletics check to scale this cliff. But be well aware, on a failed check, a rock might dislodge, and some of those rocks might come smashing on your friends below you. So if the PCs are now aware of the conditions of a success and a fail, you've basically told them. Because you don't generally do that, right? Nope. You don't usually say, all right, if you fail to pick this lock, it's going to break, or the guards are going to come, or you're, they're, somebody's going to open the door and shoot you, you know? You don't usually tell them. By saying that in such a way, they understand now that there's a huge risk. There's something at stake now. <laughs> okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to take the dart, that tape off your mouth, and you'll start screaming. And then we'll pretend to shoot you. And then you'll stop screaming. If you don't stop screaming, well, then we will shoot you. <laughs> <laughs> um, likewise, if the PCs are trying to... To sneak into a wizard's uh, school, for instance, tell the players your magical disguises, uh, the deception skill, and your knowledge of uh, academic uh, aspects of magic or arcana or another are the keys to your success here. You're basically letting the players subtly know or not so subtly what kind of stuff they need to be focusing on moving forward. I think in some cases that's more important than others and i think that determine is determined by the nature of the scenario in this case sneaking into a wizard school may not be as obvious as trying to cross a room full of lava pits you know and in in breaking apart um <laughs> stalactites that are now platforms that's a little more obvious i don't think i would have to tell you that you're entering a skill challenge 
that it, there's going to be serious risks involved in that scenario. But in some situations, like the breaking and entering, you probably will. So keep that in mind when you're running skill challenges. That'd be great. They're like, okay, you're going to go into the wizarding school, and you're going to use the sky itself. But you failed the skill, so you're still wearing a decent disguise, but you're wearing the wrong crest. <laughs> that's the that's the sort of stuff that's important to be able to think of on the fly or plan out ahead if you can. Dang, Hufflepuff! What are you doing here in Gryffindor Tower? <laughs> it's like you're visiting... The damn stairs redirected me here. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck this castle. <laughs> I just want to go pee! Where's the bathroom? It's over there, but the wall and floor is moving, and there it goes. I'm gonna shit myself. Did you eventually find the restroom? I found a window. <laughs> Somebody comes up. What happened to you? All right. I, any anything anything else? Uh, you've played a lot of 4E, so do you have anything else in regards to um, enhancing the skill challenge experience and informing the players? Well, like you said before, don't be afraid to let the players come with a uh, very um, non-standard use for some skills. That would actually make sense in some situation. They come up with a reason for it. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and and don't bottleneck them into only using certain things. And as they even mentioned in the uh, skills section in 5e, don't be afraid when you use skills to not necessarily use the uh, ability that the, that the skills attached to, as long as they, are, they can legitimately explain why. Yeah, like uh, Intimidation is a really great example. It says it's a charisma base, but I can definitely, as a player or as a DM, see Ian saying, oh, I'm going to do Intimidate check. I'm going to smash the hell out of that table. All right, you give me a strength athletics check. Or strength intimidate check. Yeah. Okay. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Strength. In, give him. Give me a strength intimidation check. Yep. And that's really important when it comes to skill challenges. Yeah. Well, how are you going to intimidate him? But by, by using the fact that I'm six foot seven and weigh three hundred fifty pounds of all muscle. <laughs> <laughs> that has been passed down from the Armstrong family. <laughs> yeah. I attempt to break the table. You roll. You hit it. The table's made of steel. <laughs> <laughs> or you hit a knot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, shit hurts. All right, that'll do it for our Dungeon Master tip of the podcast. Informing players of skill challenges. Boop, boop. Don't be super obvious about it, but let them know. <laughs> our player tip of the podcast is... Don't, don't be, be a, a dick. dick! And you can avoid dickitude by using an alias. Now, I recently played a rogue, and for the first time in a very, very long time, I don't generally play rogues um, at all. Not that I got anything against them, it's just I, I like other things, but whatever. And I actually had a blast. Um, uh, thanks for John for uh, running the game. He actually needed us to test some magic items for him. Yes, yes, he did. And um, during my character creation, it occurred to me that no self-respecting assassin, thief, thug, or otherwise, who works in the underground uh, for hire would ever give their real name. This is not something I've never asked my players, and I don't think anybody that's ever played a rogue had ever discussed with me wanting to create an alias. Um... So, during the game, I introduced my character with several different names. Do you remember this? Yes. Like, it was throwing Jam off, and then, <laughs> and then Troy's just like, does anybody else realize he's introduced himself as a different person every time he's met somebody? <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're going to run uh, an underground uh, group, make sure that you flesh out a good alias. 
um, or several different aliases. Go beyond just the name. Give it a, the character a persona, a, a unique feature that really stands out when you're doing it. Like, for instance, if I wanted my character Vin to go as uh, Phyllis, she pulls her bandana down uh, on over one eye, so she looks like she's got one eye. So that, to me, is a good reminder as the player that I'm now a different alias, but also gives a physical trait for the other players and the NPCs and the DM to latch onto. All right, Kiro, do your thing. Okay, pull the bandana. Kiro, where'd you go? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, it's the outlaw, Phyllis. <laughs> okay. What? I'm not the outlaw. It's me, Kiro. Kiro, you're back. <laughs> um, your, your alias should just be uh, something to protect your character from all the baddies. Because you could always then argue that... Um, you failed in something underground and they're sending some people after you and the DM says, well, aren't, they're looking for Phyllis. They're not looking for Vin. So <laughs> they, they only ever cap, can only ever capture, capture her or target her when she's, you know, dressed as somebody, uh, uh, another one of her aliases. And I think it makes for interesting, uh, role play opportunities. If I'm a thief and I'm stealing in my downtime and, uh, Wanted poster shows up of me with my eye patch. Time for a new alias. <laughs> uh, I am no longer Phyllis. What was the name of the stupid tank's name originally in Red versus Blue? Sheila. It is now Sheila. <laughs> name overwritten. I am now. You may now call me Phyllis. Um, well, that's I'm how not... that happened. <laughs> um, and and <laughs> so to me, this is actually something important. Now, I feel like it's probably more important for a character like a rogue or or a higher bounty hunter or something. But and I think this could still be applied for anybody. Maybe you're that that wizard with the the really high you know schooling debt, and he's changing his name so nobody comes and asks for him to collect or to collect it. Harvey, I'm here to say you're from Two Face. Ah, Joe Face, you're here. What'd you do with Harvey? <laughs> yeah, just turning it. He's got one of those two-way mirrors that, like, you turn left and right and you see his different sides. Yep. I got those in my bathroom. Okay, okay, okay. Batman, you keep seeing this up. What are you saying this up? Harvey, it's you. Okay, was he from this side? Scary face. <laughs> um, what do you guys think about this player tip? That's a good one. That makes perfect sense. I think it'd be fun, but I also think it'd throw off the DM hardcore if you don't tell him ahead of time. Yeah, oh, it, it kind of threw John off a little bit. It's like, okay, this NPC knows you as this one. This NPC knows you as... What was the other alias again? And you're, you're right. That might cause additional challenges for the DM. But you know what? They've got so much work. What's a little extra? <laughs> uh, I think that... Is there anything else you guys want to add to that? Nope. I think that'll do it for our player tip of the podcast. You know, we I, can give it a little more energy than that. It was kind of low. You know, I I know we're trying to avoid dickitude, but this seems to be the exact opposite. The exact opposite. <laughs> uh, this is our player tip of the podcast. Don't, Don't be, be a, a dick. dick. And you can avoid dickitude by Heliuses. using an alias. If you do it right. If you do it right. I only work right. Uh, before we close out, we have one more gift to give away. Compliments of Jeff Stevens. A small village, empty of villages except for one boy, found, sitting and weeping, next to a jester's pageant wagon. The boy explains that the villagers, including his family, followed a jester into the wagon and never came out. What madness could the adventurers face? Can they save the villagers, or will they go mad trying? 
Can you survive the madhouse of Tasha's kiss? Ian, who's our winner? I'm Master Tuin. Congratulations, I Master Town. Um, if you enjoy the adventure, please make sure to head on over to DMs Guild and leave Jeff Stevens a review. Let him know what you like, what you didn't like. If you're interested in experiencing this awesome adventure, we actually ran this for our patrons, and you can find that at twitch.tv slash Academy. I recommend you check it out. It was a hilarious run and a lot of fun. Oh, you know what I didn't talk about? What? I ran an amazing adventure with some patrons uh, in a rando. Uh, on Saturday, and it was fucking hilarious. Joe is an absolutely genius when it comes to roleplay. And, it, oh my god, it was amazing. We ran uh, Jack Frost Christmas Story, a Christmas Story. Oh, that one, yeah. And uh, it was it was <laughs> glorious. Have you heard any of the stuff that's written on that? No. I- I'll show you afterwards. It's pretty. It's written in Christmas poem. Um, I remember that one. <laughs> uh, Alright, so, uh, that'll do it for our show today. Please join us on our next episode where we hear feedback from you, our heroes. We will be discussing Little Heroes, a D&D supplement and guidelines for running D&D for children with special guest Anne Gregerson. I guess that means not using Goblin Slayer as a reference. <laughs> no, fuck no. <laughs> <laughs> this that this episode, remind me so I don't forget that when we record this episode, this episode, uh, our show today is suitable for children. That's, that's going to be really fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, we're going to try. Just help me, help me remember that. If you have any feedback on our tips and tricks or topics you'd like us to discuss, please send them to us. You can email them to us at critacademy at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Crit Academy. We hope you've enjoyed your experience here at Crit Academy. If you did, you can help others find a show by leaving a, hopefully, five-star review on iTunes or your platform of choice. Or you can just send us a message telling us how much you enjoy the show. Also, be sure to give us a like and a share. In March, we will be giving away a free copy of our Unearthed Tips and Tricks book. We will be choosing our winner from our iTunes review list. So if you want a chance to win, head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. So yeah, so if you want to participate, leave us an iTunes review. Um, just so you know, you don't have to have iTunes to, and use iTunes to leave a review. You can just leave a review by going through their program. Didn't know that. I don't have iTunes, and I I can do that, so I figured that out. So, there you go. Um, If you'd like to support our show, you can join our Patreon. You can head over to patreon.com slash critacademy or go to our website at critacademy.com and click the Patreon link. You can support our show for as little as $1. Um, We have different tiered rewards, and you can pick which one best fits your um, value. Um, I know at our copper level for $3 a month, you can watch our show live. Or you can watch all our video backlog of all of our live streams as well, um, which is pretty cool. So definitely check that out. You can also, Brandon also accepts commissions, full body color art and shoulder line art. You can find the prices and stuff over at our Facebook page. Um, as well as pick up our Honor Tips and Tricks book. If you like our show, um, you can definitely help us out by picking it up. You can find the link from our website or, or on our website uh, to DMs Guild or go to DMs Guild and type in Crit Academy or Honor Tips and Tricks and pick up a copy of our book if you enjoy it. And if you do pick it up, please leave a review, uh, preferably a five-star review. Um, if you're planning on leaving a one-star review, don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, make sure to subscribe to our show at CritAcademy.com so we can help you on your future adventures, as well as be entered to win cool prizes each and every single week. You'll also find links to our awesome fellowship members there. Please uh, check out our fellowship members. we got really awesome shows. Um, check out Gabe and Jeff's Interparty Conflict. Every week they answer your questions and help bring you the best tabletop experience possible. Additionally, check out D&D Character Lab. Uh, Garen and Dan create new and creative characters every single week and <laughs> argue their validity in-game and battle it out like a couple real bards additionally we've added a new podcast to our crit nation the brute force and ignorance uh dnd podcast these guys are awesome they are hilarious and it, it's it definitely adult content and a couple guys <laughs> group of guys it's just it's it's one of our first actual plays that have joined our, our crit nation so check them out uh one of our listeners dan west is one of the players on there and he's he's glorious all right i am your host justin I'm your co-host, Brandon. I'm your co-host, Ian. Thanks for listening. Keep your blade <laughs> sharp and spells prepared, heroes. <laughs> <laughs>